You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Over the past few years, uh, our habit as a church has been to um, make our way through an Old Testament book every fall. And we do that uh, because the Old Testament in particular drives us to recognize the depth of our need for redemption and the fact that God alone can secure that redemption for us. Uh, The Old Testament, in other words, is always pointing us to Jesus. It's always pointing us to Jesus. And so by doing a deep dive in the Old Testament in the fall, uh, we hope that that makes our celebration of Advent, as Jen was talking about Advent, that much sweeter because it makes us long for even more uh, the arrival of Jesus. And in that sense, the book of Judges will not disappoint you. Will not disappoint you. Judges um, might not quite get us to the depths of despair that Ecclesiastes did when we did that a few years ago, uh, but it will get close. It will get us close to that at times. Uh, As we trace the historical accounts of these 12 God-appointed leaders, Judges gives us a a front-row seat to the sinful nature of humanity. It gives us a front-row seat to the the horrific consequences of that sin, but it also will give us a front-row seat to the grace and the faithfulness of God as he comes after and and rescues his people. Uh, We don't know who wrote the book of Judges. The author is anonymous in this book. We don't know exactly when it was written. Uh, There's a 400-year or so window in which it could have been written, uh, as as early as uh, the beginning of the monarchy of Israel, where Saul and then David became king over the people, as late as the beginning of the Babylonian exile. So about a 400-year window uh, in which it could have been written. But for all that we don't know, uh, Judges does teach us a lot. Uh, Really, it helps us bridge the gap from Joshua and Moses and their leadership to the beginning of this line of kings over the the people of of Israel. And even more than that, as you'll quickly pick up as we start this series, a pattern emerges in this book. It's a cycle. Uh, But it's not a cycle that just simply repeats itself. Every time it repeats itself, it spirals downward. It spirals downward. Uh, The cycle goes like this. I'll put it on the screen in just a second. Rebellion. God's people turn away from God. Retribution. Uh, God raises up and mobilizes an enemy against his people, another nation, another group of people. Repentance. Uh, God's people, in their desperation, cry out to God for mercy. And then rescue. God raises up a judge, raises up a deliverer uh, to care for his people, to rescue them and bring them back. If you really like the alliteration, you could add a fifth R of rest then. Uh, Usually after the rescue, there's some period of relative calm and stability for a period of time before the whole thing starts over and spirals spirals downward. Uh, But even before this cycle begins, the first part of this book, where we'll be today, uh, sets the stage for all of this. It talks about the roots of rebellion. So let me pray for us, and then, then we'll get started. Living God, help us now to hear your holy word with open hearts so that we may truly understand, an understanding that we may believe, and believing that we may follow in all faithfulness and obedience, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do. 
And we pray this through Christ our Savior. Amen. Amen. Judges chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read a lot more text today than I normally do, but it's really helpful backdrop for the rest of the book. So I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. Judges chapter 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I will likewise go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negeb, in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, and they defeated Sheshai and Ahiman and Talmai. From there, they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, He who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey. And Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing. Since you have set me in the land of the Negeb, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negeb near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. And Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem, so the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. Verse 22, the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city. And they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. And that is its name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Sheon and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibliam and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. 
And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron or the inhabitants of Nahalal. So the Canaanites lived among them but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Acha or the inhabitants of Sidon or of Alab or of Oxib or of Helba or of Afik or of Rahab. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh or the inhabitants of Beth Anath. So they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anath became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Herez, in Ijalon, and in Shaalbim. But the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim, from Selah and upward. Chapter 2. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall, become, their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. And they called the name of the place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance at Timnah Heres in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. This is God's word. This is God's word. The roots of rebellion. That's what this introductory chapter and a half or so contains. The roots of rebellion. And we'll look at them in two, uh, two parts, under two headings. Compromise and covenants. Compromise and covenants. So first, rebellion is rooted in Compromise. Compromise. Uh, Judges uh, begins, as we read, with Joshua's death. And like all of the leaders among God's people, Joshua was far from a perfect man, but his life and his leadership was characterized largely uh, by faithfulness and by obedience and by courage. In Joshua chapter 23, another account of his life and when he nears his death, he passes the mantle on to other leaders and he says in that moment, you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, 
that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you, not one of them has failed. As he's nearing the end of his life, there's a sense of completion that everything is on track. And when he dies, the people then inquire of the Lord, who's first, which of the 12 tribes among us should go first into the land? So it's a good start. They're seeking to follow the lead of God, seeking to follow his lead. And God's answer is Judah, Judah. So already, already in verse two, the beginning of this book, we have a tiny taste, a small glimpse of what this entire book is gonna point to. Because years later, from the tribe of Judah will come King David. And more importantly, from the line of David will come the greater David, David's son, who is Jesus Christ. But there's a long way to go. There's a long way to go from this moment to, to that. And as we trace this downward spiral in the book of Judges, you'll see that things get worse. It starts with Judah. Uh, the first judge is a man named Othniel. And we briefly met him here in chapter 1 when he marries Caleb's daughter. We'll see him again in chapter 3. We'll come back to that in a couple weeks. The last of the 12 judges in this book is maybe a better known one. His name is Samson. And he comes from the tribe of Dan. And so actually here in chapter 1, there's a little bit of a, of a preview and a microcosm of, of what is going to play out in this book. Nine tribes are mentioned here in chapter 1. Judah goes first, is largely successful, largely faithful in its conquest. But by the time we get to the end of chapter 1 and the tribe of Dan, Dan is getting pressed back into the hill country. They're not just stopping short of full obedience. They're actually losing ground that they'd already taken. All that to say, this is not just going to simply be a repetitive cycle. It's going to be a downward, a downward spiral. And that spiral starts as outright rebellion, as apostasy almost always does, with small compromises. Small compromises. Look again at Chapter 1, verse 19. But Judah could not drive out all the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Uh, we'll talk more in just a minute about the difference between could not and would not. But note, this is the same attitude here that resulted in the Israelites wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. Within months of, of leaving slavery in Egypt, back in the book of Exodus, Moses sent spies to explore this, this same land. And of the 12 spies that went in, only two of them, Joshua and Caleb, the two that are actually mentioned here in the beginning of Judges, only two of them brought back a positive report. It's good land, they said, and, and God is with us. By his strength, we can do this. Let's go. The other 10, the other 10 spies brought back a bad report. And they stirred up the people so that they refused to go in. Now here, in an eerily similar moment, Joshua being dead, out of the picture, Judah says, well, God's been with us this whole time. We've been largely successful in all the things we've done so far. Oh, but iron chariots. Iron chariots, maybe we should stop here. We can't do that. That's too much. Back in Joshua 17, actually, this moment was anticipated by God. Speaking through Joshua, it says in Joshua 17, you shall drive out the Canaanites, though they have chariots of iron, and though they are strong. So this here is a, it's the, it's the first compromise. It's the first hairline fracture in the dam. And it's followed by even more compromises by the other tribes. 
So in verse 21, Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, does not drive out the Jebusites who are in Jerusalem. In verses 23 through 26, Joseph captures this city of Luz and calls it Bethel. And that account uh, echoes the capture of Jericho some years before, uh, where an insider, a, a citizen of that city, actually helps the Israelites accomplish that defeat. But there's a massive difference between those two accounts. In Jericho, Rahab helps the Israelites because there's been a transformation in her own heart. She's actually come to know and to trust the one true God. And she sojourns with those people for the rest of her, her life. But here, this man ends up just moving to another area and rebuilding the same city of Luz. So rather than redeeming or putting an end to the, the wickedness and the idolatry, the compromise here is that they just let it move a few miles down the road. As long as it's not here, it can exist a few miles down the road. Before we go any further, let me just say brief, a quick word about the, the military activity and the, the warfare and the violence that characterizes some of these Old Testament history books and um, that period of history. Uh, it's troubling. It's troubling. If you, uh, as a Christian or someone who's exploring Christianity, wrestles with how God could command his people to do violent things like this, you would be far from the first to wrestle with that. Um, I wrestle with that and exactly this, the specifics of it. We're going to look more at that in the weeks to come. For this morning, I just want to be clear about what this is and what this is not. If we can at least lay some groundwork that we can come back to in future weeks about what this is and what this is not. So it's not ethnic cleansing. It's not ethnic cleansing. People from these other nation states will actually feature prominently in the rest of the narrative of the Old Testament. Two of them actually will feature in Jesus' genealogy. They show up in the genealogy of Jesus Christ himself. It's not ethnic cleansing, and it's not about enriching themselves. In fact, in most cases, when they go into these areas, God says to them, don't take any of that spoil for yourself, and in some cases, destroy all of it because it's been devoted to the worship of, of idols, of, of false gods. So what's it primarily about? It's primarily about worship. It's primarily about sin and idolatry. It's about getting rid of the, the wickedness so that Israel can live and worship faithfully in this land that God had promised to Abraham so many years before. And so in that sense, it's actually an instrument of God's judgment against the, the people and the wickedness and the idolatry that's there. Now that, that doesn't resolve the, the difficulty of this. But I would invite you this morning to remember all the way back in Genesis chapter 15, God is willing to subject his own people to 400 years of slavery in Egypt. He's willing to delay fulfilling his promise to Abraham to give, them, to give him this land for 400 years because, quote, the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet complete. The Amorites is another name for the Canaanites. So in other words, Though these people in this land were entrenched against God and committing all kinds of evil 400 years ago, God was still willing to give them another 400 years. He was willing to wait. And we learn from that that God's judgment waits on his mercy. His judgment waits on his mercy and sometimes at the cost of the immense suffering of his own people. But eventually, there is a day of judgment. Eventually, there is a day of of reckoning, and when the Israelites enter into this land, that is the day of, of reckoning and judgment for the peoples who live there. So the essence then of the Israelites' compromise 
is that as instruments of God's judgment, they fail to completely enact it. They fail to go all the way to get rid of the evil and the idolatry as part of God's judgment, and they accommodate it instead. And so as the refrain then of the rest of that chapter details, Manasseh and Ephraim and Zebulun and Asher and Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of the land. Did you hear that refrain? They did not drive them out, and they did not drive them out. And then Dan, at the very end, actually gets pressed back into the hill country. Dan gets driven out of his own land. Eventually, he has to migrate, migrate north. In a handful of these cases, uh, instead of driving them out, they subject the Canaanites to forced labor. And that might sound initially like maybe that's a little bit merciful. Instead of, instead of driving them out or devoting them to destruction, we'll just make them slaves. But actually, this is just an economic incentive for compromise. Why? Because it's a lot easier to occupy your new home and to build it up if you don't have to pay for labor. So they subject them to, to forced labor. And because of these compromises, remnants of Canaan's wickedness are all over the land, sometimes lying just below the surface, sometimes not below the surface at all, still very much visible and evident. And as we'll see in this book, they become the snares, they become the stumbling blocks into which and over which Israel will fall again and again. They are the first steps of what one scholar refers to as the canonization of Israel, where the people of God just become like the, the people that they live among. Now, there are many differences between you and I and the Israelites as they enter the promised land. Okay, we're not them, different setting. But from them we too learn the dangers of compromise. Though it can be a virtue in our relationships, right? Compromise is a good thing relationally. We don't look at someone who never compromises on anything and always stands their ground and say, you know what, that person probably has a lot of friends. Uh, that person probably really appreciates his family and is appreciated by his family because he never budges on anything ever. Compromise is a good thing interpersonally, but when it comes to faithfulness and obedience to God, compromise is is deadly and destructive. And where it often begins for us is where it began for the Israelites. It's when we confuse I can't with I won't. It's when we confuse I can't with I won't. According to Judah, back in verse 19, we could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. But according to God, chapter 2, verse 2, you have not obeyed my voice. In other words, it's not that you couldn't, it's that you wouldn't. It's that you wouldn't. And the refrain that we heard over and again, they did not drive out. That refrain implies a choice that they could have, but they just didn't. In his commentary on the book of Judges, Tim Keller points out how we're, we're prone to confuse I can't with I won't in a few significant areas of our life. Uh, one is forgiveness. Forgiveness, it's really hard to forgive people, especially if the wound is deep and the pain is still very felt and tangible. So we often will say, I can't forgive that person. I can't. But really, what we're saying underneath that is I won't. I won't. Truth-telling is another one. It's hard to tell the truth. It's costly in many cases to tell the truth to someone. And so we say, I can't do that. But really what we're saying is, I won't do that. I won't risk the cost of, of speaking the truth right now. And it's also really hard to fight temptation in our lives. It's hard to, as 
The author of Hebrews puts it, resist sin to the point of shedding blood. And so we often will say, I can't. I can't. This sin, whatever it is, is just going to be with me for the rest of my life. What we're actually saying there is, I won't. I'm unwilling to. Allow the tragic example of the Israelites to, to call your bluff, to call my bluff. Where in your life are you deceiving yourself by saying, I can't follow God here. I just can't do it. I can't be obedient to what he tells me to do. When the reality is, is that you just won't, that you just don't want to because it's, it's hard. This is where compromise begins and compromise is the root of rebellion. So that's compromise. Second, uh, the roots of rebellion also have to do with covenants. Covenants. Where chapter one is more of this matter-of-fact recounting of events, chapter two begins with a a pronouncement of God's judgment uh, against his people. And the messenger, as we read there, the messenger is the angel of the Lord. This is a character we'll meet a couple times in the book of Judges. He'll come back in Judges chapter six, again in chapter 13. Uh, His identity is a little bit mysterious, and we actually, from this account in chapter 2, get very little about him, but the key word in the angel of the Lord's message here is covenant. Covenant. He says, I will never, speaking for God, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. The one true God, Yahweh, is a covenantal God. He's a covenantal God. He binds himself in relationship with his people. And that's why throughout Scripture, the metaphor of marriage is so prevalent. Marriage is a a covenant. It is a binding of two people together. Worship is also a covenant. Faithfulness in our relationship with God is also a covenant. Other ancient Near Eastern divinities, many of them tolerated pantheism. It was okay to to worship other gods as long as you worship that God. But Yahweh does not. He's exclusive. First commandment. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. And so by making peace with these pockets of Canaanites, with these groups of Canaanites, by accommodating continued wickedness and idolatry in this land, Israel is actually making new covenants with the inhabitants of the land at the same time they are breaking their initial covenant with God. Now at first, it's, the covenant breaking is not, is not all that overt. It's actually just initially an attempt to to add other covenants on top of the original one. But if and when that original covenant calls for exclusivity, adding to it is breaking it. Adding to it is breaking it. It's not taking the original covenant seriously. So to no one's surprise, it doesn't take long for the covenant breaking to become blatant. In chapter 2, verse 11, then we read, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And we go on to read, They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers. They went after other gods and bowed down to them. They abandoned the Lord and they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. Full-blown apostasy, full-blown idolatry. And this is not the last time that we will see it in the book of Judges. And each time around this cycle, even after there's repentance, even after there's rescue, it never quite bounces back all the way. It never quite gets back to where it was the cycle before. It keeps progressing downward. Now, you and I are prone to the same kind of covenant breaking and apostasy and idolatry today. 
Uh, we just have different names for the idols. Uh, you're probably not inclined to worship Baal or Ashtaroth, uh, but you might be inclined to worship money. You might be, like the Israelites do, be prone to try to add something to your worship of God, which is where it started for them. Right? We, we say, okay, I'm going to worship God, but I'm also going to pursue power and, and worship power. I'm going to pursue money. I'm going to pursue sex or comfort or convenience or control or whatever it might be. But the road between adding something to God, trying to worship something and worship God simultaneously, and then abandoning God outright, that's a well-worn road by the people of faith. Many have walked down that road seeking to initially just add something to God and then eventually abandoning him. And we are prone to the same. One other aspect here of this that's related to the idea of covenant. Um, God loves to work generationally. We see that throughout scripture. As he binds himself to his people, he makes these covenantal promises and they're meant to extend not only to the people themselves, but to their children uh, and to their children's children and on and on. But that's never inevitable and it's never automatic. Parents are, are responsible to teach and to form their children. We read that in our scripture reading from Deuteronomy chapter six today. And then each generation itself has responsibility to put its own faith and its own trust in God. As the Israelites here enter into the promised land, this breaks down. This breaks down. During the years of Joshua and the elders of Israel who outlived him, we read, uh, the people are pursuing faithfulness to God. But when that generation dies, the next generation, it says, does not know God or the, all of the work that he has done for Israel. Now, where's the breakdown? Where's the breakdown? We don't know exactly. It doesn't give us any of the specifics. Was it the fault of parents? Was it the fault of the leaders of the people who neglected to teach the people the ways of God? Was it the fault of the, just the next generation itself? It's probably elements of, of all of that. It's probably elements of all that. In more recent history, it's been observed and pointed out that the same thing happens to Christians over, in this, um, in this observation, three generations. So you have one generation that believes the gospel. The next generation after them starts to assume the gospel, where they don't actually understand it or, or try to work out all the implications of it. They just kind of assume the morality of it or some pieces of it as a backdrop. And then the next generation after them abandons the gospel, rejects the gospel. So you go from belief to assumption to rejection in three generations. Just two things I want to say about all this today. Uh, first is this. Be really slow to draw a one-for-one -one connection between the faithfulness or unfaithfulness of parents and the faith or lack thereof of their adult children. Be really slow to draw one-for-one -one connections there. Uh, we need as parents, accountability. We need encouragement uh, as we pursue being faithful parents. But there are not formulas. There's not input equals output when it comes to faith in the life of, of our kids. And then here's the hopeful part. As we observe that in our own lives, who says God is finished today? Who says God is finished? Who says that where your adult children are right now is where they will be? a year from now or five years from now or 10 years from now. And let's also remember as we're slow and gracious to parents and not drawing these one-for-one -one connections, let's also remember that each generation is responsible to give its own account to God. Each person is. As Paul says in Romans 14, each one of us will give an account to God. The second thing I want to say about this is this, and specifically speaking to parents. Uh, parents, 
Let your kids be rescued by Jesus. Let your kids be rescued by Jesus. Don't try to rescue them from everything yourself. I completely, as a parent, understand the instinct. In so many ways, it flows from love and and the good desire to protect your kids. But your kids cannot be vicariously rescued by Jesus through your life and through your experience. Somehow, in this case, in Judges, the next generation of Israelites seems to have completely missed a firsthand experience of God. They don't know him and they don't know his work. How that happened, I'm not exactly sure. But when we overfunction as parents, when we seek to spare our kids from every kind of pain and suffering and difficulty and discomfort in life, we can inadvertently keep them from knowing God themselves, from knowing the work of God firsthand rather than vicariously. And it can introduce and it can reinforce a delusion of of self-sufficiency. Or maybe not even self-sufficiency, maybe just mom and dad sufficiency. And it can obscure, it will obscure, genuine God dependency, the desperate firsthand need that each one of us has for the grace and the rescue of God in our own lives. So let your kids be rescued by Jesus, even as you pursue caring for them and protecting them. One last thing to say this morning about all of this and about covenants in particular, and it's a question I'll put to you. When God makes a covenant with his people, is it a conditional or is it an unconditional covenant? Did you feel tension around that, even in chapter two as we started to read the book of Judges the other day? God promised this land so many years ago, so if it's unconditional, if it's an unconditional covenant, he's gonna give it to them regardless of what they do. But God also promised that if his people rebelled against him, he would not give it to them, which is conditional. An Old Testament scholar named Michael Wilcox summarized it this way. He says, It's as though the Lord is saying, I have sworn to give you the whole of this land, and yet I have also sworn not to give it to a disobedient people. You have put me in an impossible situation. You've put me in an impossible situation. Now, if we pay attention, we will see this tension not only in Judges, but throughout all of Scripture. And we'll find ourselves being pulled back and forth in how we're supposed to understand God's relationship with his people, his relationship with even even closer to home than that, even more significant. We'll start to wrestle with that in our own lives. Does God deal with you in your life conditionally or unconditionally? And as we do that, some of us will fixate on the conditional. We'll fixate on the conditional. So we must obey. We must do what is right. And when we fixate on that to the neglect of the other, it will lead us to be legalistic people. It will lead us to to pile rules on top of rules. It will also lead us, if you've wrestled with this and you're more this way, it will lead you to a life of anxiety and fear. Because when will you have done enough to know that you've met God's conditions? How, How perfect is perfect enough? And might God not just be waiting for you to step out of the the conditions that you're fulfilling so that he can just crush you and cut you off forever? Others of us fixate on the unconditional. That God is gracious. That God forgives. But when we fixate on that to the neglect of the conditional, we start to think, maybe my actions don't matter at all. Uh, Maybe God's just going to do what he promised. Who cares what I do? And this will lead us to presumption. This will lead us to laziness in our pursuit of faithfulness and our pursuit of holiness before God. Why should we try anyway? Why bother? Why labor to obey when God's just going to do what God's going to do anyway? 
as we make our way through the rest of this book of Judges, you will feel this tension over and over again. Will God be faithful or will God be holy? Will God forgive or will God hold accountable? Will God be just or will God be merciful? And the answer is yes. He will. He will be and he will do all of these things. Sometimes it will seem like he is all justice and no mercy. Sometimes it will seem like he is all mercy and no justice where wicked, wickedness is just flourishing and everybody's suffering because of it. But friends, all of this is building and pointing to the great salvation that God is working for his people. Because the resolution to this tension that we feel even here at the beginning of Judges can only be found at the cross can only be found at the cross. Jesus offering himself up for the sin of the world is the only way that God can be both conditional and unconditional in his covenant with us. Sin must be dealt with. You must be holy to enter the presence of God. There's a condition. And so Jesus takes our sin upon himself and he gives his righteousness, his holiness to us at the cross. And then in Christ, nothing now can separate us from the love of God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is now unconditional because Jesus himself, God in the flesh, met the conditions. We are compromisers, are we not? We are covenant breakers. We confuse I can't with I won't. We overfunction as parents and we underfunction as parents. We presume upon God's unconditional promises and we become lazy in our pursuit of holiness. We fixate on God's conditional promises and we become fearful and anxious. But thanks be to God, He will rescue the rebel. He will rescue the rebel time and time and time and time again. In Christ, the well of God's grace is inexhaustible. It is infinitely renewable. And so when, in late November, we reach the bottom of this downward spiral, and we are that much more aware of human depravity and also our own depravity, we can rejoice that behind all of these judges is the judge. Behind all of these deliverers is the deliverer. And in Jesus, he has once and for all secured the rescue his people. Amen. Let me pray for us. Almighty and loving God, we bless you for the gift of your word because parts of that word are unbelievably severe, unbelievably severe in your justice and your judgment, and other parts of it are unbelievably merciful, and we see all of it driving us to the cross of Jesus Christ where your justice and mercy perfectly meet where peace and righteousness kiss each other, as the psalmist says. And so we pray now for the grace to believe what we have heard and to live in ways that honor you above all. We pray that we would now receive your grace again as we come to this table, for we desperately need it in our lives each and every moment. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.